Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today on this Thanksgiving holiday, we will look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Thanksgiving with William Taylor, who is known in the earth justice community as the Reverend Billy, a pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping, a group of activists based in New York City whose main tactic is singing while trespassing. The Stop Shopping Choir has staged performances in Walmarts, Disney stores, Monsanto Labs, the roof of Carnegie Hall and at jails, pipelines and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies across five continents. And the Earth Church just returned from the Climate Conference in Glasgow and this week is celebrating its 20th anniversary with a performance at Joe's Pub Public Theatre in New York City on Sunday the 28th. We'll discuss the choir's recent appearance at the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow and their planned activities on Black Friday when they will be protesting the orgy of consumerism as shoppers descend on malls and big box stores. Then, on this Thanksgiving, we will look into both what we can be thankful for and what we can aspire to become and speak with Stefan Schwartz, a distinguished consulting faculty at Saybrook University, as well as editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and a columnist for the journal Explore, where his latest article is America's Desperate Need for Well-Being. Although the planet faces the existential challenge of climate change and the U.S. faces the possibility of devolving into a one-party fascist state controlled by an anti-democratic GOP led by a mentally unstable wannabe dictator, we'll focus on what can be done to improve the lives of Americans at a time when liberty appears to threaten life and the pursuit of happiness. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is William Tallon, who is known in the earth justice community as the Reverend Billy, a pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping, a group of activists based in New York City, whose main tactic is singing while trespassing. The Stop Shopping Choir has staged performances in Walmarts, Disney stores, Monsanto Labs, the roof of Carnegie Hall, and at jails, pipelines, and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies across five continents. The Earth Church just returned from the Climate Conference in Glasgow, and this week is celebrating its 20th anniversary with a performance at Joe's Pub's Public Theatre in New York City on Sunday the 28th. Welcome to Background Briefing. William Talon. Glad to be here, Ian. Well, uh, hallelujah, and thank you, hallelujah. Your, your worship, <laughs> uh, your grace, <laughs> your holiness. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, particularly on Thanksgiving. I know that you're going to be very busy on Black Friday. So, But let me, let me ask you, since you've just returned from Glasgow, 
what happened there with in terms of your performance and where did you stage it and what kind of impact did it have? Well, there were 25 singers, um, maybe 20, maybe a little bit more than that. We, some of us were from London, some of us from New York. We practiced our songs across the Atlantic for a couple months before we got together. Um, the way the tour was designed, we, we went into seven different cities and we would meet with activists in the afternoon and parade with them, go into a super mall, go into a garden, go, go to a fracking well, whatever the activists needed a bunch of singers for. And we've become adept at, you know, just incorporating people's slogans in there, you know, what they need to, to say into, uh, quickly improvised songs. And so we uh, had these two buses. So after our stage show would be in the evening, we'd get on the bus and then the island is small enough so that we would go to sleep and wake up in the next city that we had to be at. We could go all the way from Brighton to Newcastle and still still um, manage to get there overnight. So we had these two big rock and roll buses zigzagging back and forth across the island. Of course, the last place we, we, we came to for the last four days of the tour was Glasgow. And wow, what a scene that was. Well, tell us about the scene. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I think that you can imagine that there are these militarized hotels and conference centers in, in a fenced-off area and um, there's police along the perimeter. So inside are these negotiations between the super rich and representatives of the investor class and the oil companies and so forth with uh, nation state representatives and NGOs and so forth. They're negotiating the agreement about trying to keep keep the temperature of the earth at uh, an increase of 1.5 Celsius. Well, then there's the police, of which there were thousands upon thousands, heavily militarized. But for a New Yorker, there was a big difference in the fact that the police were not carrying guns. In, in, uh, here in New York, I think it's like Los Angeles, you just have to be very careful around cops all the time because they're you know, they're, they're high or they're adolescents or they're, you know, and they'll shoot you, especially if you're a person of color. That wasn't the case there in Glasgow. They, they were bobbies. <laughs> they had, they had no guns. So, but there were a lot of them in fluorescent green vests, keeping us from the, uh, the elites who were discussing CO2 emissions inside the uh, center. Then, uh, out out here in the streets and parks and schools and, uh, you know, the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from all over the world singing and parading and feeding each other and uh, just a, a mass of international culture. It was a lot of fun. And the Stop Shopping Choir and we paraded around. It was like it was like the Latin quarter in new Orleans or something. It was a, it was a great feeling and lots of people having fun. Uh, 
and then it would occur to us what was going on in inside the conference center and then and then then you didn't feel so much fun because we knew what, we knew what was going down and i think the whole world did they would be stalling again they would be they would be making promises that they would break and so on wednesday the 9th 9 days into the cop 26 an amazing thing happened that made all the difference the heavyweights sitting around the table there negotiating they have at their elbows and in concentric circles around them all the way to the doors and down the hallways they have what is called civil society civil society civil society they are witnesses for different communities in different countries around the world they are researchers in direct employ of NGOs uh, supplying data about the climate and about habitats and the how hard it is for many people to live in the present situation the physical environment having degraded so much all those kinds of support people all of a sudden i guess they were they were talking to each other internally all of a sudden they all stood up and walked out mr masters mm. and they uh they came out the doors, they streamed out the doors, and some of the people on the outside, on the other side of the police, out in the streets, were tipped off to this. And so we were waiting, and they paraded. Well, it wasn't really a parade. <laughs> I don't remember drums or music, but they, in fact, they, they walked with a certain uh, solemnity. I think it was a serious... Uh, it was kind of a sad thing. They had to leave. Mm. A lot of these people are people of color. A lot of these people are younger people from the global south, uh, representing communities that are harder hit by climate change and superstorms and heat waves and droughts than, uh, than the people in the temperate north. They left. They walked out, and they walked towards us, towards the gate, and the police opened the gate, and they walked into us. They joined us outside. I would say there was something like, I don't know, maybe 300 of them. And um, that is when, that is when COP26 got really interesting. What happened, they started dancing and shouting and letting their hair down and probably gyrating a little bit like they really could not do in that super polite place they came from. And they started talking to us. And of course we uh, came from all over the world and we are representing communities back home. And we, we are carrying messages. The church has stopped shopping. We had town hall meetings at every one of those seven cities that we were in on our way to Glasgow. And we were carrying lots of, messages from people about their worries about their families about their businesses and and so forth so there was just a lot of talk going on and we were like trading names and numbers and um you just got the feeling that advocacy groups were were being established at that moment that this this is a moment where culture is beginning and maybe this is a new kind of environmental movement maybe this is you know which has been famously so weak and so unable to to stand up to the bankers and the, the oil companies and the chemical companies and 
maybe this is a new, I don't know if they were thinking that's what they were doing when they came out, but very soon we all felt this could be, this could be a change, a radical change in our approach. Well, it's necessary, isn't it? A necessary change because the 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 governments failed. Uh, at least they failed to to address the urgency of the moment. And we're at already one point two degrees Celsius and, and uh, growing rapidly. And clearly, what was agreed to, if indeed it's fulfilled, uh, is inadequate. So the ball is in the court of activists and NGOs, etc., because governments have failed us. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Well, it was to, to us there in Glasgow. We just did not have the faith that that the negotiations were going to produce any kind of breakthrough. And John Kerry is kind of this, <laughs> you know, stranded good guy. You know, he, he doesn't really have the backing that he needs and, and, um, he's ever optimistic, right. but he comes from super wealth and he's, he just seems very out of touch with what's going on in, in the other parts of the earth. No, we didn't think we were not optimistic that anything would, would come from that, but you sit there and you wait, you wait, right. You well, know, there you, know, was you a, hope there were some, you know, amongst the governments, there were some passionate speeches, I think, from some of the Caribbean nations and other Pacific islands that are literally going underwater. So let's uh, turn here because it's Thanksgiving. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Reverend Billy, that you're going to be very busy tomorrow, Black Friday. What have you got planned? Well, we're going to go into Times Square and... We have our songs from the uh, from the from the tour in in the UK. Our basic message is consumerism is you know in the twenty years of our history uh, of of our of our group of our Earth Church, the degree to which consumerism has taken over the world. We couldn't have guessed that it would be so apocalyptic 20 years ago. We were concerned about sweatshops, union busting, uh, the destruction of neighborhood shops by chain stores, gentrification. You know, we we were <laughs> we saw consumerism getting uh, getting really really uh, creating a monoculture, a monoculture that would be dangerous. And and I think that has happened, but we never could have guessed that the general habitat destruction and extinction across the um, huge groups of people just unable to make a living anymore. The droughts, the seasons are all mixed up. The farmings, you know, the the, uh, upwards of a hundred million people are now just wandering, migrating, looking for a dream somewhere across some militarized border. We never could have guessed it get this bad. Now we have circled around and, and, we feel that human justice and earth justice ultimately are the same thing. Uh, we, we, we work for immigration rights and black lives matter and LGBTQ rights. We we're we're available to make a parade and make a concert um, for anybody who asks, but 
the the feeling we have coming from Glasgow is that the divorce that people have from the earth, uh, the separation from the natural world is so profound uh, that you just have to go back to the basis of racism. You have to go back to the 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 way that people divorce themselves from life itself. So we're we're you know our our songs the message is is deeper and more basic than it used to be. You, we used to have a song, of course, we had songs about sweatshops, we had songs about gentrification, and those are ongoing issues. Now, it's more like you'll find us singing about the earth is alive. The earth has the earth is alive, Ian. <laughs> the earth is conscious. All of this that is happening to us, the human race, and and it's it's not an accident. The natural disasters are just multiplying and multiplying. This is this is an, this is an, an apocalyptic episode. It's it's the sixth extinction. But when you say the Earth is alive, the Earth seems to be reacting and warning us. Isn't isn't that what's going on? The Earth is saying, "You're hurting us. You're destroying this precious, unique." globe that we have in the middle of a vast void of space. I mean, you know, you, if Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk want to live on Mars, they're welcome to it. But frankly, <laughs> I think it was David Attenborough that said, you know, who would want to leave this beautiful planet? And the point about this beautiful planet is it's crying out, isn't it? Isn't Gaia in pain? Well, that's that's what I hear in the in the screaming wind and the and the floods and even the virus, you know, the, it's all coming from the earth. I hear um, a profound message. And, and our, our response um, needs to, uh, we, have to find, we have to find our indigenous selves, regardless of, of how divorced we have been from the earth in how we were raised. It's incumbent upon everybody to, to find their way back to the earth right now and to and to find their moral center the justice from there i think that i spent some some portion of my life with right thinking and trying to you know find the 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 ethical way to go without really changing my relationship to my physical environment just talking personally and i, I think that the the stop shopping choir that's the that's the turn we've taken we're very disappointed in the environmental movement. We feel our friends in England that were with us uh, were the Extinction Rebellion people. And they have the same problem with traditional environmentalism. The change has to be more basic. One of the leaders of the Extinction Rebellion said we need a, a, a civic, um, what's that word, a psilocybin experience? <laughs> I'm not getting the words right. A large-scale, profound psychological shift. It's not just something that can be done by right thinking, by being persuaded by, uh, by a great essay by Bill McKibben. It, it can't, it's, more, it's more stem and root than that, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, here I am stuttering on a, on a popular radio show. I'm stuttering, <laughs> and I, I can't quite well, get well, I can't, but I'm you, trying to get to the bottom of what... Right, but at Help least me, you, at least you're not buying anything, and that's the whole point of uh, opposing this consumerism, which is 
exemplified so much by Black Friday, and people simply don't need all of these products that have basically been extracted from the earth in these... They're fossil. It's a fossil fuel-based uh, holiday. Right. Absolutely. That, that's a generalization, but it's... And it's an amazing thing that I know out in L.A. you've got all those container ships out there. Right. And uh, we've got the same thing here in New York. Right, the, and it's uh, a problem. It's been treated uh, as a huge problem for Biden and for the Democrats when it's a problem for humanity. It's a problem because we need that stuff and we got to stop needing that stuff. Isn't that ultimately what it's about? Yes, the the inability to deliver these these products, so many of them plastic, fossil fuel, and so many of them coming in with the drumbeat of carbon heavy marketing. Uh, they say that if you if you live in a city and have a computer, chances are that you get hitting you're getting hit with ten thousand advertising events every day. And and this this consumer society that we've set up uh, has just uh, been uh, designed by the profit motive. It doesn't have a designer. It doesn't, it never was thought through and we never knew where it was going. We never knew right. what it would do to us. Right. Except well, now we, it, we're, we're, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you, but in terms of the, all our ships off Long Beach and Los Angeles harbors polluting the air, Transportation, whether it's aircraft and ships, the biggest polluters are China, followed by the U.S., followed by India, followed by the EU. But the number fifth biggest polluter on this planet is international transportation, ships and aircraft. So, you know, and it's just obviously getting worse. Any a quick word here yeah. so that people can enjoy their turkey without thinking about... Uh, the end of the earth without thinking about what the the life that t turkey lived <laughs> <laughs> you can start you can start really close in here you don't have to get general about the earth you can just start with that turkey but i know that some of our listeners are are going to um eat uh, tofu turkeys tofurkeys amen oh god all right and, uh, <laughs> I... there you go that, we are grateful. Great gratitude is a very powerful emotion, and it can be used. It can it can be fuel for the right kind of fuel for social change. And being grateful for the earth right now is a being grateful for your own life. Being grateful that you are a part of the earth and that the earth is blessing you, uh, despite the the wildfires and 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 the virus and the superstorms, the droughts, the heat waves. Um, the Earth is is reaching out, communicating to this rogue predator, the human being. Uh, we we need to be grateful for what the Earth has continues to give us. This life is 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 still something that most of us can continue f for now. With that gratitude, should be the promise that we will profoundly change. That we will look at everything everything that we do, how we live our life and be willing to give up the oldest habits and then be able to, with that profound change in how we live personally, our personal consumption, that gives us bravery and we can turn 
and we can risk our life to save life, which is where we are right now. The fossil fuel companies are heavily militarized, and those those military interventions by 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 police using assault weapons and all sorts of surplus from Iraq and Afghanistan, they are supported by many of the courts. So we have right now a real challenge, a real, a real, a real profound challenge where many ordinary people will have to say to themselves, I'm going to be a radical now for the earth. Well, just in closing it, there has been a recent example of how we can heal the earth and change our habits and our way of life because COVID, the shutdown, resulted in a huge drop in CO2 into the atmosphere. People weren't spending hours on the freeway, basically stalled on the freeway, pumping fumes into the atmosphere. They were telecommuting, working from home. It was a clear signal that we can change our ways. We don't have to live according to these destructive patterns. And of course, now we're going back into it, and now everybody's complaining about the price of gas, and and we need to pump more gas, and all this stuff. So we had a, a brief wake-up call and a brief lesson. I enjoyed the fact that the sky was clear, that there, it wasn't filled with aircraft and noise, and uh, you know you could hear the birds for a change. Um, <laughs> do you think that uh, that we could at least retain some of that recent memory? I agree with you completely. We should let COVID change us. We, we should let the, the animals come into the cities. We should let the, the, the color of the sky be that deep blue here in New York. It was a completely different kind of blue. You really felt like walking around in a science fiction movie. It was a remarkable change. The birds were singing more loudly. Partly, they, I think that they were. But part of it was just less internal combustion engines all the time, you know. You know that probably drowned drowned out the sound of birds. They had, may have been there singing before. I I live right next to with my family near a, a big park, Prospect Park, and so we uh, we have had that fifty percent drop in songbirds over the recent years. But during COVID, we felt the presence of birds. So that that uh, making a living. Making a living, learning to make a living in, um, in a way that doesn't put a lot of people into, into automobiles, that doesn't depend upon fossil fuel, doesn't depend upon delivery systems like Amazon. Amazon is the top, um, the top um, CO2 emitter in the world, um, a million, one million metric tons of CO2 Every week comes from Jeff Bezos. So we, we have certain things we just know to avoid right off the bat. But we have to sit down, kind of stop our lives and sit down with our families and say, all right, how heavy is that carbon? What are we doing when we do this? And really just have a list of your activities. And, and that's what stop shopping means now. Uh, <laughs> that's what black combating Black Friday with by nothing day is something that's possible for all of us. Well, it's necessary for the earth and we'll, well be happier. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. We'll be happier people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Ian, Hallelujah. thanks for having me on your amazing, 
amazing background briefing. I, I don't know how background I was, but well, uh, no, thank you, you for having, you, having you me You came here into the foreground a little there, so I thank you <laughs> for joining us, William Taylor. And again, he's known in the Earth Justice community as Reverend Billy, the pastor of the Church of Stop Shopping, a group of activists based in New York City whose main tactic is singing while trespassing. The Stop Shopping Choir has staged performances in Walmarts, Disney stores, Monsanto Labs, the roof of Carnegie Hall, and a jail's pipelines and J.P. Morgan Chase lobbies across five continents. And the Earth Church just returned from the Climate Conference in Glasgow and this week is celebrating its 20th anniversary with a performance at Joe's Pub's Public Theatre in New York City on Sunday the 28th. We can take a brief station break. We're back on this Thanksgiving looking into both what we can be thankful for, and what we can aspire to become. Better get to the table, get to the table on time. And the Lord of Lords, he laid out a feast. He said, listen to me, boys, this will be the last one of these. So you better get to the table, get to the table on time. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And on this Thanksgiving, we're joined by Stephen Schwartz, a distinguished consulting faculty at Saybrook University, as well as editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net, and a columnist for the journal Explore, where his latest article is America's Desperate Need for Well-Being, and his latest book is The Eight Laws of Change. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Schwartz. A pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And on this uh, Thanksgiving holiday, let's begin with uh, what you feel we can be thankful for, since it's a pretty dark period we've been through for the last four years with Trump, and problems have not gone away. And uh, there's a real possibility that, well, America, the American way of life, uh, in particular our democracy, will disappear in a very short period of time. There's a lot of uh, challenges that we can talk about, but let's begin with the possibility of something that we can feel good about today on this day where families get together and it's a non-commercial holiday, which I find very refreshing. And people enjoy each other's company and celebrate, you know, the good things in life. Yes, I uh, I completely concur with you about the uh the darkness that we are facing, and particularly the threats to our democracy. But there are some good things. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised at, at how poorly uh, Biden is doing in the polls, because if you actually look at what he's doing, I mean, uh, for instance, just the other day, he reversed the Trumpian indulgence of plastic waste. We're finally... He's now going to try to do something about the plastic waste that is such a pollution factor all over the planet. If you looked at the, the, the bill that just passed, the cost of, of insulin uh, is going to be $35 a month instead of $1,000 a month or whatever. We are getting an extension of health care. Uh, we're getting... 
elder care. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of things. Now, of course, we have to get them through the Senate, and whether that can be done with Manchin and Cinema, I don't know. They're certainly not going to get any Republican support. But on the whole, I would say uh, Biden is really getting a bum rap because he is trying to do good things and they are passing good things. So I, I am in that respect, I am modestly optimistic. I, I mean, there are all the things that you list and many more that I could list that are wrong. But um, we do seem finally to be getting enough people in the Congress to pass bills that that foster well-being. And that's from my perspective, that is the key to a successful government, not making profit, which is what we have structured our culture on, but instead fostering well-being at every level. And I do see some signs of that uh, coming with uh, the Biden material, the uh, conversion out of the carbon era to electrical vehicles. That's going to be a huge effect. So on Thanksgiving, I think we can be thankful that at least we are making some modest moves in the right direction. So let's talk about well-being and and the way that you can judge countries based on the categories of the social outcome data that leads to well-being. And in your Explore article, America's Desperate Need for Well-Being, you list four categories, healthcare, happiness, justice, and childcare. So let's begin, though, with why you think well-being is a the yardstick to judge nations by? Well, uh, Ian, I, I am, you know, I'm an experimentalist. And so I don't really care about political partisanship, except anthropologically. It's kind of interesting to watch tribal behaviors. But I, what I really care about is social outcome data, because it cuts through all the crap and you really get down to, is this working? Can what I care about and what I think we should be focused on is are we fostering well-being in a manner that can be objectively verified? And that's the calibration. And if you look at countries that are doing that, particularly and most notably the Scandinavian, the Nordic countries, New Zealand and, and the Netherlands, what you see is better health better longevity, less obesity, less heart disease, more education, higher education, less incarceration. I mean, less maternal mortality, less infant mortality. I mean, just pick anything you like, really. And you look at the social outcome data that which can be objectively measured so that it's not about a theory, it's not about a speculation, it's not about political philosophies. It's, you know, if you do this, what happens? And if you look at that, what you see is that those countries which have chosen to make well-being a priority as opposed to profit are doing better. Their people live longer, they're healthier, they make more money, 
They have better health care. They have child care. In every way you could measure your day-to-day -day life, they're doing better. Well, let's start with the first one of uh, the categories that you mentioned, healthcare, happiness, justice, and childcare. Healthcare, we know, of course, that the United States spends the most per capita on healthcare, with, certainly not with the best outcomes. The U.S. is ranked 11th in this study from the Commonwealth Fund that finds Australia, Canada, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, France, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, and the United Kingdom ahead, and the United States is ranked last. Yes, so, we rank last in terms of the developed nations, that the, those 11 countries. If you look at the entire country, if you look at the entire world, we rank 37th by the World Health Organization. We pay more, orders of magnitude more, than any other country on earth for health care, and we have dreadful outcome data. And the reason we have dreadful outcome data is that we don't have a healthcare system. We have an illness profit system. That is, everything is geared to making profit. It's not geared to having healthy people. And so we have an illness profit system and because illness is very, very profitable. So when you look at this and you look at the other countries uh, and you see not just healthcare as a generality, but you look at subsets of that, like obesity, heart disease, cancer, longevity. You know, how long do you live? All of those things, we, although we spend more than anybody else by orders of magnitude, um, we don't get very good outcome because we're not, the whole system is not structured to foster well being. And again, I'm speaking with Stefan Schwartz, who's a distinguished consulting faculty at Saybrook University, as well as the editor of the daily web publication, SchwartzReport.net, and a columnist for the journal Explore, where his latest article is America's Desperate Need for Well-Being, and his latest book is The Eight Laws of Change. So let's move to the second category, uh, child care. And of course, it's a truism to say that children are a nation's future. But when you look at the statistics of the United States and how we deal with children, we're far from that standard. In fact, yes, we. Um, I mean, I just here's a quote from the New York Times: "In the developed world, the United States is an outlier in its low levels of financial support for young children's care. Something Democrats, with their safety net spending bill, are trying to change. The U.S. spends point." 2% of its GDP on childcare for children two and under, which is about $200 a year. And if you look at the actual expenditures for childcare in other countries, you see that we pay so little for, for childcare that, um, I mean, to give you an example, in Norway, they pay $29,726 a year annually for childcare, whereas in the United States we spend five hundred dollars. Uh, Iceland twenty four thousand four hundred twenty seven, Finland twenty three thousand three hundred fifty three, Germany eighteen thousand six hundred fifty six. I mean, it's appalling. Yes, and children are the future, and as a result of our low expenditure for childcare, 
we have a whole set of grievous problems that other countries don't have because we don't educate children well, we don't, we don't feed them well, we don't see that their parents get childcare so that they can make a living. Uh, it affects the poverty rate. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Why aren't we supporting American children? And the truth is, Americans love their children, but they don't like children in general. And our Congress certainly doesn't like children because up until now with the, the Biden bill, the expenditure for childcare has been so low that it's almost out of the ballpark of childcare the world over. Well, in this uh, Build Back Better bill, which has not been uh, finalized by any means, uh, Joe Manchin, all of the things you're talking about, he says, oh, we're going to become a dependent society. And he, he stripped out or objected to the idea of family leave, which really upset a lot of, particularly Patty Murray and some of the women senators. I don't know exactly where that stands, but you point out in your Explore article that we are a nation that's so rich that competing private individuals could finance their own space programs whereas more than 38 million Americans faced food insecurity in 2020 and nearly 9% increased over 2019. So yeah, the idea One in seven children have hunger. One in seven. One in seven children in the United States have food insecurity. That's preposterous. You've got... As, as you note, as I wrote, you, you know, you've got people that are rich enough they can run their own space programs, but, but somehow we can't get enough food into children's stomachs that they can grow up without food issues. I, I, mean, I just, it's appalling. And I, what I really don't understand is why, you know, we were taught, you were mentioning Joe Manchin. What I don't get is what do the people of West Virginia, who have all kinds of social problems, what in the world are they doing electing someone like that? I mean, he is, he is as you pointed out, he's, he, we're going to become an entitlement society. Yeah, that's an interesting comment from a multimillionaire whose yachts out on the Potomac River, when in fact, the people in his actual state that he supported supposedly represents have enormous problems from everything from from opioid addiction because of their poverty and and despair to the childcare to education. What in the what make what I don't understand is what are the people of America thinking when they talk about voting for Republicans? Well, he's a Democrat. <laughs> uh, well, in name only. Right. Well, he's about the only Democrat that could get elected there. At least that's the excuse that's given for him. I know. But that's the question. What is it going on in the culture of West Virginia that, that Joe Manchin represents the collective consciousness, as represented by voters, of his state? You would think that the people of West Virginia would be particularly keen to see child care 
and educational support and uh, family support and, and family leave and all those things that are built into the to the Biden legislation. I just uh, I, I can tell you a great deal about the specifics of the outcome data. But what I do not get and I have not heard anybody explain it clearly is why Americans don't seem to care about well-being other than their own. So let's move to the next category, justice and the World Justice Project, which is a reliable indicator. It's basically saying that where are we? We're twentieth. We top at, twenty. Yeah, we were just replaced by Spain, so we're at twentieth yeah. below again. Mostly the Nordic countries, right? Yes. Yes, we, you know, the, the problem is, in, and I think Thanksgiving is a good time to think about this and even to talk about it. Why do we rank so poorly? You know, we tell ourselves we're the great shining light, we're the best, we're the leader, all of that stuff that all you hear politicians talk about constantly, when in truth, we aren't any of those things. And I think the question we really should be asking ourselves and I mean at the family level, is why don't we care about well-being? Certainly, Benjamin Franklin cared about well-being. He started the first insurance company, the first fire company, the first hospital. He left money to support working class people. People are still, there are a couple of thousand people are still getting education on the basis of Franklin's creation of a trust fund that is still paying out. How is it possible that we lost the idea that when everybody prospers, everyone does better? Well, as you point out, we are no longer a we culture. It is every person for themselves, and our culture's first priority as a society is profit and the power it bestows. And, of course, we do yes. worship the billionaires and obsess over them and and <laughs> at the same time they don't pay taxes which i think is the most brazen example of yes, in your exactly. face inequality yeah i mean think about that you and i are probably paying more in annual income as are most of your listeners than the four richest men in the country that is crazy i mean <laughs> This, the Republican tax reduction, which went 86% went to, to the rich, what was that about? Why is it that we tolerate? I think that's the question we should be sitting around the table talking about. Why do we tolerate this? Why is it that countries all over the world, democracies, real democracies, have made well-being a social priority, and we have not. Well, let's I mean, we're go going to, to give Thanksgiving. Why aren't we thinking about that? Well, I think it's time for people to think about it. And also, I've mentioned this a few times that in this country now, liberty is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. And your last category here in, in well-being or in America's desperate need for well-being 
is happiness. It's in the Declaration of Independence. So um, yes. we're advertising that as our national standard. But address, if you will, my fear or the, the irony that I, I see that liberty is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness, that people are feeling that it's a matter of personal liberty not to be vaccinated, not to wear masks, not to be socially distanced, and to be able to carry military weapons uh, openly on the streets of America. Yes, exactly. I mean, if you look at uh, COVID, is a, is a classic example of this. In COVID, in the United States, as a result of, of Trump and other people like that, we have made we have created a kind of COVID suicide cult. You know, I uh, I just came back from uh, getting a, a part of my physical, and I was talking with my doctor, and I said, you know, what do you think is going on? What how what do you how do you feel in his nurse? And they said we are so tired of people unvaccinated people taking up all of the space in the hospitals. We can't get other patients who have other problems that are quite serious. They can't even get a bed because it's filled entirely with these unvaccinated people. And most of them, most of the deaths that we're now experiencing are the unvaccinated. It's become a kind of suicide cult. And I, again, I, how can you not look at that? Over a thousand people a day are still dying from COVID. And yet there are people that are out picketing, demonstrating against wearing masks or getting vaccinated. There is something going on in the culture. Let me put it that way. Right. But it's also is, ha it also has a political dimension because oh, yes. Biden, he's troubled, I think, and he's low poll numbers. At the heart of them, I think, is the fact that he hasn't been able to solve COVID. And the reason he hasn't been able to solve, solve COVID is because of these people you're talking about. And these people are Trump supporters. And Trump and Fox yes. News are encouraging these people to be defiant. So you could make yes. the case, which I'd made before and on yesterday's program, that the Republican Party is invested in death. Yes, I would agree with you. Uh, I think it is, I think it's actually quite extraordinary and 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 really a phenomena that deserves close attention that the Republican Party has chosen to emphasize things which produce violence and death. Uh, you know, the gun deaths, for instance, there is no other country in the world, in the world that even approaches the amount of gun deaths that occur in the United States. I mean, to be, I was uh, corresponding with another scientist in France uh, yesterday, and we were talking about, in a Skype, we were talking about this, and he said, well, you know, my wife and I talked about it, and we decided we didn't want to come to the United States this summer. We were planning to do it, to go to some of the national parks, but we decided that it's getting too dangerous. Any place that there's a crowd of people, you just never know. And he said, look at that thing that happened uh, where the guy drove his, his SUV into the crowd that was uh, having a celebration 
or you look at the, the, the Aubrey business, somebody just shot some guy because he was jogging in the neighborhood. He said, it's just too dangerous. And I thought after I had we had hung up, I thought it's true. You know, if you were a person in in any European country or or Japan or any of those countries, you know, and you watched the news, it would be dangerous to think about coming to the United States because now you look at Texas, for instance, where you can carry a weapon without any training, without any license, with that, with nobody's buy your leave. Now you just know that there are enough crazy people that the death rate in Texas is going to go up as a result of gunfire. And it's, uh, we have this obsessive psychosis about guns. But what people do not seem to understand is that the Second Amendment was created because the military, uh, the founders did not want a permanent army because they had experienced what that was like. They had to bivouac British officers and, and uh, they had to pay for uh, standing armies. If you look at the, if you look the, in the Constitution, they created a permanent navy, but not a permanent army. And the way they wanted to deal with things was through militias. And also the slave states wanted militias so that they could, and they wanted the ability to go into other states, free states, so that they could track down runaway slaves. That's what's behind all this Second Amendment business. They, they never envisioned, I, you cannot imagine Franklin, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, any of the, the big names of the founders, I mean, believing that it was okay for uh, people, armed individuals, wandering the streets, anytime something irritated them, they just could pull it out and shoot a couple of people. Uh, it's it's astonishing. It and it's all done in the, it's, it's all done in the name of liberty. That's the part where yes. I I wonder yes, about yes. it that we've fallen so far from grace in terms of the Declaration of Independence, uh, where liberty threatens life and the pursuit of happiness. Just in the last minute, Stephen Schwartz, let's get back to Thanksgiving, and I know we started out talking about what we can be thankful for. And I I don't mean to make stuff up after what we've been talking about, but any last thoughts in that regard? Yes. I, as you sit around the Thanksgiving table, here's what I would recommend. That everybody at the table in your family, whatever their age, whatever their gender, whatever their race or religion, makes this commitment. Every day, I make dozens of choices about things. I commit myself today that every choice I will make will be the most compassionate, life-affirming, and fostering of well-being. And that's the toilet paper you buy, the toothpaste you buy, where you buy your gas, how you treat other people, that every choice you make fosters compassionate, life-affirming, well-being. And if every single person does that, we can change the culture. It does not require armies. It doesn't require wealth. This is what Gandhi understood. 
when Gandhi, just before he was assassinated, he was interviewed uh, by the Times of India, and they said to him, what our editor wants to know is, how did you force the British to leave India? How did you get the British to give up their most prized colonial possession? And his answer was, it's not what we did that mattered, although it mattered. It's not what we said that mattered, although that mattered too. It was the nature of our character, our beingness, that supported a free India that caused the British to choose, without a war, to leave India. Collective awareness on the part of individuals, regardless of who they are, whatever money they've got or anything else, if every choice you make fosters well-being and you tell all your friends and family that that's what you're doing and you invite them to join you, by this time next Thanksgiving, we could be living in a different world. Well, Stephen Schwartz, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure and happy Thanksgiving, Ian. The same to you and uh, to all of our listeners. And again, I've been speaking with Stefan Schwartz, who is a distinguished consulting faculty of Saybrook University, as well as the editor of the daily web publication SchwartzReport.net and a columnist for the journal Explore, where his latest article is America's Desperate Need for Wellbeing. And his latest book is The Eight Laws of Change. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.